Abby. So our reading today is Romans 8, um, verses 15 to 27. The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So I'd love to invite up Lex. Lex is one of our congregation members. She is married to Joe, and she's got a very cute baby called Jude. Um, this is her first ever preach at St. Nick, so let's all be really encouraging and give her a massive welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I have to preface that I don't normally sound, I would say, cool. Somebody told me this voice sounds cool, but I woke up yesterday with a bit of a like head cold and gruff voice so um, hopefully we'll get through without any coughing fits but bear with me um, if that's not necessarily as plain sailing as I'd like it to be. Um, I'm really excited to be speaking to you tonight. Welcome to those uh, who are watching online. Um, I spilled some gravy on my trousers earlier at lunch so I hope you can't see that. Um, I've pointed it out now so I know you'll be looking at it but there we go. I've done it to myself. Um, As Ellie said, um, my name's Lex. It comes from Alexandra, if you're wondering. Um, But don't call me that, because I'll feel like I'm in trouble. Um, I'm married to Joe, my husband, who's at home with our little baby Jude. Um, He's a very loud, very excited American. Um, So uh, you probably know who he is. I'm often referred to as Joe's wife, as opposed to Lex. But I'm okay with that label. Um, And yeah, I became a mum. My little boy's about seven and a half months old, so it's my first Mother's Day um, this year, technically with him Earthside, as we might say. Um, So that's really exciting. Um, I do want to acknowledge the fact that today, um, although it's great for many, is difficult also for others. Joe um, and myself lost a child a couple of years ago um, and so I know the pain of what it might feel like for people who've had a loss on Mother's Day um, and do you know what I'm really excited to be bringing a message of hope 
Um, today we're talking, um, carrying on our distinct series, um, and the title of today's talk is Distinctly Hopeful. Um, and what a message to have on a day that is both amazing for some and very sad for others. Um, but we see you, God sees you, he knows you, he knows your heart and your story, and he wants to speak to you um, today. We believe that as well, don't we? Um, just to give you a little bit of an introduction and a background about me. Um, so not only am I a mum, and I apologise, I'm normally talking to a baby 24-7, so hopefully I've not got any like baby talk going on here. Um, but my normal job work, um, I work as an operations manager for a company who I'm sure many of you will have ordered from over the last couple of days, um, shall remain nameless, but they send out lots of brown parcels with smiles on the side of them, um, so hopefully you know what I'm referring to. Um, but yeah, I work in operations and I work with massive teams and we do lots lots of data analysis, lots of strategic decision making. Um, and so. I'm used to talking in front of people, um, but <laughs> not quite in this context, so um, hopefully um, it'll be all right. Um, I went to university in Lancaster. I studied business management and entrepreneurship. Um, Lancaster's really a little town way, way, way in the north. I'd never heard of it before I went there, um, but I loved it. A small university town, um, but I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and Joe and I moved to Bristol about four years ago, and it's such a cool city. If you're a student in Bristol, like, you're so lucky, honestly. There were, like, no shops anywhere near me in Lancaster. It smelt like a farmyard every time I went out of the door. So, like, the fact that you're in such a cool, vibrant city is just amazing. I hope you love being here um, as much as I do. We just heard our reading um, from Romans 8, and I've got to be honest, when I found out that was the passage I was going to be speaking on, um, my heart, I should, we shouldn't say, it sank a little. I was a little bit anxious about it um, because, as we know, all of the Bible is really amazing, God-breathed, um, but Romans is, this passage especially, I just felt was really weighty. I want to read you um, a little subtext. Um, there's a guy called Andrew Ollerton who has just um, he wrote the Bible course. If you've not heard of it, check it out. It's really cool. Um, he wrote a book called Romans that he released recently. And in it, he says this. Romans 8 is a 360-degree panorama of God's great purpose from the dawn of time and into eternity. Paul's breadth of vision helps to reframe our small, brief existence in the light of something much grander and more significant. It gives us confidence to face the future, knowing God's purpose will prevail. This is absolutely foundational to the gospel. As Paul puts it, in this hope, we were saved. And I want to bring three points to you tonight. I don't know what it is about church. We love three points to keep it nice and concise. Um, and if you don't know, and you'll get to find out tonight, hopefully I won't keep you too long. But I do love to talk. So three points for me is really handy because it limits at least how much I can say. My first point is a hope for now. I wonder whether we've got that on the screen. Thank you. If I asked you whether you think the world is getting better or worse, what would you say? In fact, I wonder if we can just do a poll in the room. I can't really see. It's very dark. Um, if you think the world is getting better, give me a wave. 
Okay, this is better than this morning, honestly. We had like one hand waving back at me. So we've got some more optimistic people in the room. But I mean, still, there's about five hands up in the room. So um, I don't know how many hands up online, obviously. But um, safe to say, I think that we could guess and go by the poll that we don't think things are great. Well, in a 2015 poll, only 4% of Brits and 6% of Americans said they thought the world was getting better. I know, I was going to say, Americans are ever the optimist, right? I know my in-laws are watching at home, but uh, my husband is very optimistic, and he would always have a better answer than me. Johan Nordbuck, in his book, Progress, measured 10 areas, food, sanitation, life expectancy, the conditions of childhood, poverty, violence, the environment, literacy, freedom, and equality. And he says that by any objective measure of well-being, there is, this is the best time in human history to be alive. Quote, despite what we hear on the news and from many authorities, the great story of our era is that we are witnessing the greatest improvement in global living standards ever to take place. Poverty, malnutrition, illiteracy, child labor, and infant mortality are falling faster than at any other time in human history. Life expectancy at birth has increased more than twice as much in the last century as it did in the previous 200,000 years. The risk that an individual will be exposed to war, die in a natural disaster, or be subjected to dictatorship has become smaller than it was in any other epoch. A child born today is more likely to reach retirement age than their forebearers were to live to their fifth birthday. I don't know about you, but that sounds incredible. We don't hear about this stuff on the news, and so no wonder it's not our perception of the world today. In other words, in all areas of our lives, we are on average healthier and wealthier than in the past. You could say we're living in the golden age, but it doesn't really feel like that. Who's told the room? Most of us don't feel like things are better. In fact, in that same poll, 71% of Brits said they thought things were getting worse. And you only have to turn on the news and see a world pervaded by sexism, racism, massacres, violence, political division, abuse of power, global warming, natural disasters, a mental health epidemic. You know, as we've been reading in those passages in Romans, Paul has just been speaking of the glory of adoption into the family of God. And then after this thought of glory, he comes back to the present world and its troubled state. He doesn't really share this vision of a golden age. He sees creation itself, the created world, all of nature waiting for the glory that will be. But he reminds us of the stark truth that currently creation is in bondage to decay. The theologian and philosopher Leslie Newbigin said, secularism will eventually expose itself as the untrue story that it is. And all that we will be left to put our hope in is Christ himself. He said, not even the church will escape our cynicism and disappointment. We'll be left with nothing and no one to hope in but Christ. And here we are decades later and his words feel more prophetic than ever before. As we have attained more progress, we have actually lost meaning, purpose, and ultimately hope. You know, secular society has convinced us that we can create our own utopia without God. 
And this lie of secular progression, I think, is driving spiritual regression that we feel. I don't know if any of you are married. Joe and I have been married now for about four and a half years. And many people set goals in their first year of marriage. You know, um, they want to achieve things together. Often these are really um, purposeful goals. And my husband presented me with a goal for the first year of our marriage. And that was that I was to watch all of the movies that were part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is no mean feat, right? Like, there's like 30-odd movies going on here, so it was an entire year's worth of um, commitment. And I don't know if you've seen any of these movies, but there's this whole storyline. They're like all these different storylines, but they all weave into this one big story. Um, and there's this movie called Avengers Endgame, and it's like the kind of finale of this whole story. If you're a nerd, I'm sorry, I shouldn't use that word. If you're into this... <laughs> I'm one too now, I've been converted. But if you're into this kind of thing, then it's like phase four, I think, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's many phases, um, obviously, but I won't go through all of them. Um, anyway, there's this movie, Avengers Endgame, and in it, there's this big bad guy, I think we've got a picture of him, called Thanos. He's very ugly, look at him. Um, Thanos is this big baddie, and he's actually been kind of like showing up in different movies across the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but this one, he's the obvious guy that shows himself as the villain. And he's been collecting these things called Infinity Stones, um, which basically will mean that he can wield like the power of the universe. And the idea is he wants to be able to collect them together, click his fingers, and wipe out half the universal population. And the Avengers have been spending the whole of the last movie and the whole of this movie trying to fight him to stop that happening. And this is the moment in the movie, I'm sorry if I'm going to spoil it for you, but you've had four years to watch it, so I don't think you're going to do that by now. <laughs> so I've got no shame in saying that, okay? Um, so he's got them, he's got the stones, and just before he clicks his fingers, he turns and says, I am inevitable. And it is this moment where it feels like it's all over. Fate, destiny, whatever you want to call it, is coming. And there is nothing, no matter how hard they try, the Avengers can do to stop it. And if you're in the audience, and if you've seen that film and you went to see it in the cinema, or if you watched it at home, it's like, oh, your heart drops. Just feels so hopeless. It's all over. And sometimes I think life feels like this for us, right? We've just talked about the state of the world and the futility of life. And it is all too easy to turn on the news and feel as though death and decay are inevitable. I wonder if we can put up the Romans 8 verse, just a little bit of verse 5, just a little bit before the passage we just read. And it says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on the spirit. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. A life dominated by flesh is a path to death. There is no future in it. And to allow the things of the world to completely dominate our lives is self-extinction. In fact, I would go as far to say as it is spiritual extinction. 
And we are seeing this reality unfold in our world today. The blazing truth for Paul, who's the writer of Romans, is that the human situation is not a hopeless one. If we have hope in Jesus' death, then we have hope in his life and in who he says he is. To live like Jesus, a spirit-led life, as we just read, is life and peace. And this isn't a weak hope. This isn't a, gosh, I really hope it doesn't rain or hope to feel better. I hope I get this job. This is an assured, confident, steadfast hope. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know, Paul makes it clear that we are not immune from the difficulties of life. And we know that Jesus wasn't either. Although he was God, Jesus was also fully human. He knew what it was to suffer. In fact, there's that famous verse in the Bible. When Lazarus dies, it says, Jesus wept. He knew. He knew what brokenness and pain looked like. And he lived it. But his life was marked by integrity and faithfulness to God despite this. And if we were to look at the spiritual lives of those around us, people who don't know Jesus, our friends, our family, our colleagues, students that we spend our time with at university, then they would appear to be tossed around in the waves. Nothing to anchor them. In fact, we could describe it as spiritual turmoil. And this is why I think in the world everything is appealing and yet nothing satisfies. Nothing is sufficient or secure. It doesn't matter how good everything in the world is. We've just gone through all those statistics and life actually is better. But it doesn't feel that way because it doesn't matter what the world has to offer. It will never be enough. You know, um, back when I was in high school, I was really lucky that I, um, I grew up in a Christian home and I'd always had a relationship with Jesus. I came to faith at a very young age and it was really real for me. Um, and I got baptized at 14 and right after I got baptized, things just started going wrong for me. And I remember this one really like blase day at school and we were sat in a lesson, I can't remember, like PSE or something like this, some like non-lesson. And <laughs> gee, I miss those days when you didn't learn about anything. Um, and there was a boy who I didn't really get along with who turned around, who sat in front of me in class, and he turned around and he just said like, you're fat. That was all he said to me. And I had never, ever thought about that before. It never bothered me. I was always really fit and healthy. We ate well. Like, I just never even considered it. And I remember going down to the toilets at lunchtime and looking at myself in the mirror and just something shifted. And do you know what? For eight years, I never saw myself the same again. There was this lack of self-esteem and this 
honestly, hatred of myself that plagued me for seven or eight years of my life. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that there were moments where I really didn't see the point in being alive. And I know that I am not the only person in this room that has experienced a situation that feels hopeless. Like, there's no future. And you know, I want to encourage you, if you're experiencing something, it might not be related to that. For years I struggled after that with, with bulimia and anorexia, and it was a time of complete destruction, self-destruction for me, spiritual destruction. But there was something that was steadfast in all of that time, and it was faith in Jesus. And I don't want to big it up as this big, amazing moment where I was healed from it, because I struggled for years. I'd love to tell you that there was a magic formula where one day I was prayed for and I woke up and it was better. But it wasn't. It was a gradual softening of my heart, whispering of the Spirit, I regularly came forward for prayer at church. I had my friends pray for me. And over time, Jesus just held on to me. And I held on to a hope. I didn't, you know, in the midst of all of that, I knew I didn't want to live life, life like this. I didn't want this to be my story. I knew, I knew that there was something better, that there, was, there must be something else there. A hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know, before we had this morning's service, somebody brought a word, Zoe actually brought a word, and it was a picture of somebody who is stood in the waves, and they're looking out, and there's like seven-foot waves just coming over them, crashing one after the other, and they feel like they can't catch a break, but... They're not knocked over by the power of the waves. They're firm and secure, anchored. And you know what? As a Christian, life is like that. We can't escape the pain and the brokenness of this world, but we don't have to be taken out by it. We have a hope, firm and secure. You know, hope for now means that while we wait patiently for the not yet that we've been promised, we can be anchored in a hope in Jesus, in the life that he can bring now. Clinging to the good we can't see in the midst of the bad we can't escape. And it has nothing to do with human expectations and everything to do with the grace of God. And the good news is we're not on our own. We've not been left to just figure it all out by ourselves. Paul writes that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit who was given to us as our helper, our comforter. He comes alongside us in the reality that is our everyday lives. And he perseveres with us, helping shape us to become more like Jesus. And that's why for those of us who are Christians, Paul says, our lives should be marked not by despair or merely optimism, but by hope. I want to pose a question to you before we move on to our next point. How do you respond when you're confronted with the pain and the brokenness of the world? Is your hope 
in Jesus, an anchor firm and secure for your soul. My second point, a hope in the not yet. Romans 8, 22, 25, I wonder if you can just pop that up there, that little passage. At the end of the verse we hear, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So we wait for it patiently. And you know it means persistence. Perseverance is persistence in doing something difficult or a delay in achieving success. You know in this world we don't like delays in achieving success. We want it now. And I just want to give you a bit of a picture of, um, if you're a mum in the room, hopefully you can relate to this, but about labour, because Paul talks about labour pains, and I love the picture that he uses. You can ask any mum in the room, if you can find one, if her labour was worth it, and I guarantee you'll hear a resounding yes. And why is that? I mean, we've seen labour pictured in movies, right? Like, It is painful, sometimes unbearably so. It is the furthest thing from glamorous. It is hard work, physically and mentally testing. Why is it that women put themselves through it? Once, twice, often many more times? It's because the prize waiting at the other end is worth it. You know, before I had my son Jude, I made my husband do um, this course called, it was like a hypnobirthing course. Um, and I just want to preface that it's not like hypnosis, okay? Because my dad really thought it was like some sort of cult thing. <laughs> I had to, had to convince him that it wasn't. It's literally just the science of labor and birth. And it talks all about, you know, oxytocin, which is a love hormone that helps move labor along. And um, they teach you loads of things about breathing techniques and how to stay as relaxed as possible. And now this was a real challenge for me, because if you know anything about me, I am the furthest thing from relaxed. Like, just, I get stressed about thinking about relaxing, okay? So this was really difficult for me. But the idea is that you're supposed to relax and focus, focus your breathing on what is coming, on what your body is doing for you to meet your baby. Everything has been preparing for this moment when your baby will enter the world. The pain now is incomparable, just like Paul says, to the beauty of life waiting on the other side. There's this anxious anticipation, okay, for the life that is coming. And I can relate to this. When I went on maternity leave, I was like 37 weeks or so, and like 40 weeks is when you know, you're full term and you're going to have a baby. But like 37 weeks I went off and I was like, right, baby, come on, ready. Like anxious anticipation. I was like, get out of there, come on, I'm ready. I don't want to wait anymore. In fact, there were mums in my kind of birthing group who had already had their babies before me, even though they were due after me. And I was like really angry about it. Not fair. Like lots of impatience and frustration mixed in with the anticipation of meeting my son. But there's this sense of looking beyond the perspective that is now and into what is coming. And this is the state of waiting that Paul describes, the waiting that we find ourselves in, the now and not yet. There's this ache as if in labor. 
But he says the pain and uncomfortability of now will be incomparable to the future that awaits us. And in this passage, Paul would have been writing to the the Jews at the time and um, it would have been a passage that any Jew would recognize and understand. Because if you don't know, Jewish thought divided time into two different sections. There would have been the age that is now, present age, the time we're living in, and the age to come. And I think, actually, as Christians, we've kind of lost sight that there is an age to come. Although life now is our reality, we have to gain the perspective that it is a journey to an end destination. And in verse 19, Paul uses the phrase eager expectation. And the actual word that he would have used in the Greek was apocaridosia. Okay, sorry if you're Greek and I've pronounced that incorrectly. And there's no literal translation for this word, okay? So there's a description for it. And I'm going to read it to you. It describes the attitude of a person who scans the horizon with head thrust forward, eagerly searching the distance for the first signs of the dawn break of glory. In other words, to anxiously anticipate, to be so focused on this one thing that everything else fades to insignificance. Um, I wonder if we can put up the picture that I've got. This is probably the best description that I could find of what that might look like, this eager anticipation. If you've seen Moana, which don't lie to me, I know most of you in the room have, have, even though you don't have children, right? It's a great movie. But like this whole story, she's so eager to get in the water to discover part of who she is. Head thrust forward, searching for the dawn break of glory. And this is a real challenge. Like, I feel personally challenged. When I was writing this and I read that meaning, I thought, gosh, I don't think that I feel like hope for the not yet, hope in the life that we've been promised, for me, is a head thrust forward, eager anticipation. But it's a challenge for us because it should be. That should be our hope. Hope in the glory to come. I wonder if we've lost sight in all the chaos and the distraction of life today of what it is all about. For those of us who are Christians, the world is not our final destination. In Hebrews 6.1, Paul says, therefore, let us go on towards perfection. And the word he would have used in the original text was telos. It's a journey towards a destination. When you Go to plug in something to, you know, your sat-nav or like Waze. We use Waze, don't we? Not sat-nav. Or Google Maps, something like that. When you plug in where you're going and you arrive there, it says you've reached your destination. In other words, you've reached your telos. It translates to end, conclusion, fulfillment. He's not talking, Paul's not talking about perfect as we know it. That which can't be improved but rather the completion of God's plan of salvation, which is eternity with him. This is our destination, our telos. You know, um, a couple of years back, we lost someone in our family. Um, she wasn't directly related to us, but she, um, she was like an auntie to me, like a second mother. Um, and we were very close. They had kids our age. Um, at the time, and um, she died really suddenly. It's like six weeks from when she was diagnosed, she died. 
and it was the worst funeral I've ever been to in my entire life. She, she was a Christian, um, and I remember hearing like screams and cries of grief at this funeral, and it was just like gut-wrenchingly sad. But this woman, her name was Vicky, she touched the lives of so many people just by the way she lived. She had this question that she would ask me, which is, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? And I remember lots of people brought that, that sentence to her funeral. And there were, she worked in a school, and there were kids from her school from years, years back that had kind of had her coach and mentor them, help them. She worked with kids with behavioral problems a lot of the time. And she had dozens, dozens of people become Christians at her funeral. And I remember being so moved because although this was supposed to be a really sad moment, she'd gone to be with Jesus in eternity. That's what she believed. That's what we believed, those of us who were Christians, who were there. I remember feeling so hopeless when we'd heard about her death, so hopeless for her family and her children. But nobody really walked out of that funeral feeling hopeless. We walked out of that funeral celebrating, celebrating a life that she lived, knowing she was going somewhere so much better. And we walked out celebrating because not only was her life with Jesus now in eternity, but people have been impacted this side of eternity because of the way that she lived. I wonder if we can put up um, Corinthians 15, verse 19. And I want to challenge you with this point. It says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't want us to take this verse lightly. Everything we believe hangs on the hope that something better is coming. If you think your Christian faith, although we've talked about hope for now, and that is what we are promised, you know, spirit-led life is peace and life, this side of eternity. But this is not, this is not all that there is. And if we don't, if that's not true, if Jesus didn't really die and was resurrected, then everything we believe is a lie. So I want to challenge you. Your entire faith rests on the fact that something better is waiting for you. The great finale, God's final scene where the culmination of the work that Jesus did on the cross will come together in a glorious reveal and we will be transformed to that which we were created to be. Our entire faith rests on this truth that there is a glorious hope waiting for us. And our lives on earth are in preparation, not for death, but for life. I want to go to my final point, which is a hope for others. Let me ask you a question. In fact, I would love for you to turn to your neighbor and ask them this question. Are you a hope bringer?
Amazing. I don't want to, I can hear lots of giggling, so I'm not sure whether that means there was a yes or a no there, but are you a hope bringer? If you're honest in your own heart, despite what you said to the person next to you, which is probably yes, are you a hope bringer? You see, not only do we have a hope in the now and a hope in the not yet, the life that is coming, but we have a hope to share. Are you living as the most hope-filled person in the room? Because if you are a Christian, you should be. You have the answer. If we live spirit-led lives with our hope firmly anchored in Jesus, then it becomes really attractive. You know, Jesus was really attractive to people. It's not so much about us being perfect. It's not about perfection, but it's about Christ-like reflection. The hope that we have in Jesus is life-giving. We've talked about the state of the world and the pain and the brokenness of life today. And I'm telling you, we don't need another drug or diagnosis or another phone or another Netflix show. And we definitely don't need another prime minister, please. Just not for the moment, at least. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And the people outside these four walls need Jesus. Have you ever eaten a meal that is so good that you have to tell people about it? If you ask my husband Joe, it's pretty much every meal he ever eats. But <laughs> as I said, he's an American. They get very excited. There's this cafe in Clifton. It's called Foliage Cafe, okay, if you want to go and check it out. And they sell the most amazing cannolis. Do you know cannoli? You know those, like, little, like, like praline twills with like cream in the middle. They're Italian. They're very good. They might not be the most amazing, but we don't live in rural Italy. So at least in Bristol, they're the best that I have found. And they're so good, like really good with a cup of coffee. Not so sure about tea if you're a tea drinker, but I'm a coffee drinker because I'm a mum. So um, but there's nothing better. Like that 3 p.m. like, oh, need a pick-me-up. Like they're so good. And do you know what I tell everyone about them? If you're visiting and you come over and you want a cup of coffee, like, I'm bringing you a cannoli. If I go to someone's house and I'm going over to say hi, I'm bringing cannolis. It's mainly an excuse for me to eat them, to be honest with you. But I love them so much that I want other people to experience them. I don't want to tell you these cannolis can change your life, but I think you should go and try them and then come back to me. Now, I didn't find these cannolis on my own. Actually, somebody who goes to this church, Harry Johnson, the legend, um, she, she shared them with me. She brought them to my house after we had our son. And she thought they were so good that she wanted me to experience them too. Hope in Jesus is like this, or at least it should be. I'm reminded of the woman at the well, that story where she was so transformed by the hope of life found in Jesus that she ran back to her village and told everybody and anybody who would listen to her. I wonder if we can pop up Colossians. 
26 to 27. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope that we have in Christ is offered to all. The hope we have in Jesus is through grace only, through his dying on the cross. It is not unachievable or reserved for the best of us. It is for everyone. Too often we've seen being a Christian look like an outdated, judgmental attitude robbing us of enjoyment from life. But I can tell you, I look at this generation, at the, you know, my generation and those coming after me, and they don't look like people who are experiencing enjoyment in life. The hope-filled life that we find in Jesus, that he models and he calls us to, is a powerful witness to the love of God and the power of the gospel to transform lives and communities. Toby mentioned this quote by Pete Gregg last Sunday. Would you rather be gullible or cynical? To have too much hope in God's grace to transform lives and our world. Or not enough hope in the grace of God that it can't extend to you or to anybody else. What else can we offer a broken, hurting, dying world except the only hope we have? The solution to all of it, to all the questions of life, to all the searching is Jesus. And I wonder if we can invite the band back up. And I wonder if I can just ask you guys to stand. That verse in Colossians says to us, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, among people who don't know God, the glorious riches of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to pose some questions to you. And I wonder, maybe you want to close your eyes where you are at and just listen. We believe the Holy Spirit is at work in people's hearts, wherever we meet. It doesn't necessarily have to be a church service like this, but we believe that where people meet, in the name of God, that he shows up. And so now I just wonder, as I'm going through these, maybe just listen to what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. my first point, hope for now. Maybe listening to that, you feel challenged. 
Do you need to be reawakened by the Holy Spirit? Do you need to, to sense that again, the hope that Jesus brings for life now? Do you need a hope that is firm and secure and anchor for your soul? Maybe you feel like that person who's just being hit by the waves and can't catch a break. Maybe you've been looking at other things in life to anchor you, but you know you need that to be Jesus. Or maybe you need a hope for the not yet. Maybe you've been faithfully attending church and serving, going about your life, but you have lost the perspective of the glorious hope that is waiting for you. And you want to be filled again with the eager anticipation of the life that is to come. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. And you've been hearing about what we're talking about and you've been searching and you haven't found what you're looking for. Maybe Jesus tonight is what you need to find. You want the hope that is being talked about, the hope of this life that is promised, peace and life now, but also a life that is to come. And finally, maybe you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit for boldness and excitement. Maybe you've lost the excitement of the hope that we have to share, the hope in Jesus. Maybe you've taken it for granted that you've got it, but other people need to have that too. So maybe you want to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with boldness and eager anticipation to share that with other people, to be so excited about the future that is ahead and the hope that you have, that you have to share it with others. And if any of those apply to you, maybe as you're just kind of sitting and listening, standing and listening, maybe God's stirring something in your heart. We would love to pray with you. We don't want to move away from this moment. I know that if not all three, definitely those apply to me. And so if you, if any of those, you know, resonate with you, we would love to pray with you. And pray that the Holy Spirit reignite the hope that we have hope for now hope for not yet and hope to share with other people the only thing that we have to cling to in this life is Jesus